our reading from John chapter 19, and it's a long chapter, so I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read a portion of the chapter down to verse 16, 1 to 16. John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, O King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the, Lord, to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which is Aramaic, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Now, I know that this is Palm Sunday, and Grant has introduced that to us. I'm not going to preach a Palm Sunday sermon. I'm going to preach what really is a Good Friday sermon today. But it's Easter week, and it is a very holy week for all of us who are Christians and should be a week of deep reflection for everybody who says that they are Christians or are thinking about the possibility of becoming Christians. Because this is the time when we think particularly about what happened to this man, Jesus Christ, who came from a little village and appeared on the scene and created such tremendous controversy wherever he went and, and caused tremendous division wherever he went. 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who never did a single thing wrong in his life, never thought a wrong thought, never said a wrong word, never did anything wrong in his life, nevertheless is finally condemned as a criminal and he is killed on a Roman cross. Now, just recently in the news, we've been watching the visit of the King of England to Europe. He didn't get into France because there were protests there, but he went to Germany, where he's very warmly welcomed, and he even engaged in a cheese-making exercise. How wonderful it was for the King of England, and what an easy visit. But when this particular king came into Jerusalem, it wasn't like that at all. There was no warm welcome for him ultimately. There was initially when he came in and he was riding on the donkey and they all shouted welcome to him and he was the Messiah who had come to save them. And how quickly that opinion changed as time went by so that eventually the shouts were crucify him, crucifying all within a week. So I want to talk to you today about the king on the cross. And I want to take it from this little passage that we have before us, and I can't read the whole chapter to you because it's a bit long, but let me just mention three or four things to you that I think are important. First of all, let's have a look at the king who was put onto the cross for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we say that he was a king, because ultimately when he faces Pontius Pilate here in this chapter, he acknowledges that he is a king. And even the people who were his enemies recognized him as a king. They even put a mock crown of thorns on his head. They saw him as a king. They saw him in mockery, but in reality he was indeed a king. But he was a king of a kingdom that you can't see with your eyes or touch with your hands. So the king is now sentenced to the cross. I want you to notice a couple of things about the king being on the cross. First of all, I want you to remember that the king who was on the cross was there voluntarily. He went to the cross, of course, after being sentenced by the Jewish Sanhedrin. He went to the cross after being given the official sentence by Pontius Pilate. So from a human perspective, um, all of these things played a role, and he went there because of human malice, human hatred, and human rejection, and by the mobs shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But mobs, of course, have no logic. You know that. We know that. And they put him on the cross because of all of these human factors. But we know that none of these human factors ultimately were important. They were all expected by him. He himself said, no one takes my life from me. This was a king who has ultimate power. This was a king who was going to give his life for a special cause. No one takes his life from him. And so they put him on the cross. And uh, when you read the story, and if you're not a Christian, you'll think, that he was put on the cross because he was just overcome and overwhelmed by the evil of men and by malice of men and because of the power that men have, he was put on the cross. But it is not true. The Lord Jesus Christ knew exactly what was going to happen to him and he surrendered himself 
to all of that ignominy so that he could go to the cross and die for us. He surrendered himself to all of the hatred of men. He surrendered himself to the rejection of human beings. He surrendered himself to the whips of punishment that were lashed on his back. He surrendered himself to the judgment of a weak Roman procurator. He surrendered himself to all of these things so that he could accomplish his great purpose. No one put him there. He went there of his own accord. It was voluntary. Even Pontius Pilate recognized that in some way and so wrote up on a sign that was put up above his head, King of the Jews. The Jews rejected the sign and said, don't say King of the Jews, rather say that he claimed to be the King of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written, because he was angry with the Jewish people. He was always angry with them. That's what made him such a bad governor, so that shortly after this event he was banished from Judea by the authorities in Rome itself. And so the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross as a king, and he went there as a volunteer. The next thing you need to remember about the king on the cross is that when he dies on the cross, it is a judicial death. You must never forget that, dear friends, because we can become very sentimental about these things. You know, we who come to church regularly and we who are Christians and sing the hymns and know the stories, well, perhaps from childhood even, if you were fortunate enough to have a Christian home, then everything becomes very... So we become so used to everything. It becomes something that we've heard a thousand times before. But we must not forget that something very deep and very special and very profound was happening on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ was, was dying judicially. He was doing something that from heaven's point of view was terribly important to happen so that you could be here today and be a believer. Of course, Pontius Pilate, who had the power to, to send people to their death on the cross, exercised that power. And one could say that there was a, a judicial element in Pontius Pilate's sentence, but that's not what we are talking about. What we are talking about goes much further than that. What we are talking about is the very fulfillment of all the prophecies that God made, gave in the Old Testament about a Messiah who would come and who would, and, and, and who, a special person who would come and would give his life so that people could be redeemed. But that could not happen until the sins of the human race had been dealt with. You cannot have reconciliation with anybody without justice. You know, many years ago, some of you remember, we went through that um, massacre at our church and then I attended the Truth and Reconciliation meetings. And what was interesting to me when I sat through the Truth and Reconciliation meetings and we had to sit through the Truth and Reconciliation meetings with our own attackers at that time, and uh, we had to meet with them, and before they could be forgiven by the state, not, not by us or by God, but by the state. Before they could be forgiven that, you meet certain requirements. There were certain requirements that had to be met. 
and only when those requirements were met, and those requirements were they had to give a public show of repentance. They had to say, I'm sorry. That's what they had to say for what they had done. And only after that had happened could they then be judicially forgiven by the state. When we met them, we said to them, well, the state may indeed forgive you. And we as individual Christians, we have extended the hand of forgiveness to you for three years. But you cannot, uh, we cannot actually bestow forgiveness upon you until you accept the forgiveness we offer you. So they never did. And we said to them, when we had to meet them privately in a private room, the forgiveness you've really got to bother about is God's forgiveness. The state's forgiveness is nothing. Our forgiveness is nothing. But when you stand before the almighty creator of the universe, then forgiveness means everything. And that forgiveness cannot be given to you until the payment of your crimes have been met. Now, we couldn't pay back to God anything for the crimes that we have committed as a human race. We could not say to God, well, we'll pay you back. Please just let us into heaven. You see, God gave us a very great gift in the Garden of Eden. He gave us the gift of righteousness and innocence. And when that was forfeited by Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit, from that day on, the human race offered that uh, they were they were in bondage. They were they were they were in a place where they needed to offer back to God finally that righteousness that He gave us, which we forfeited through our forefathers in the Garden of Eden. So when any human being stands before Almighty God, if you die and you stand before God, and on the day of judgment when we all stand before God, the question God might ask, if I can put it like this by way of illustration, is to simply to say, is, where is the righteousness I gave you in the Garden? What happened to it? I want that righteousness back again. Well, I can't give him that righteousness back again. I can't do that. But there was one person who came in the history of the world who could, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into our world and lived his sinless life and then was taken and voluntarily allowed himself to be crucified on the cross so that his righteousness and sinlessness could be given to us so that when I stand before God on that great judgment day and he says, where is the righteousness I gave you in the Garden of Eden? We'll point to the righteousness of Christ and say, here it is, Lord. He's given it to us. And because the righteousness is given back to us, we'll be allowed into the kingdom of heaven. So when the Lord Jesus Christ, the great king, went to the cross. He went to the cross to pay a price we could not pay. He went to the cross to offer up a life that we could not offer. And he went to the cross to open a door that we could not open. And he did all of that because of who, of who he was, the sinless Son of God, 
who carried in his own body, in his own soul, in his own hands, the righteousness that we needed so that the doors of heaven would open to us. And that is what you get when you come to Christ. You get that kind of forgiveness. You get that kind of, you get that kind of welcome. You get that kind of gift. And that's what Jesus meant when he spoke about eternal life. I will pay the price. If you will come to me and ask me for it, I will give it to you. So that when you stand before God, you can point to my righteousness. And the Father will say to you, welcome into the heavenly realms. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, goes to the cross. And I want you to remember that he went voluntarily and he went judicially to the cross. Judicially means that justice, justice was meted out on the cross. And that justice should have fallen on you and me, but it fell on him. Second thing I'd like you to notice today is that in this little account that we have here in Mark chapter 19 about the Lord Jesus Christ being go going to the cross is a picture of the hardness of the human heart. You know, human hearts can become terribly hard. And you'll see that illustrated. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Pilate had no right to have Jesus flogged. He was a Roman governor and there were certain rules that needed to be obeyed and he couldn't have an innocent man flogged. But he did because he was trying to appease the mob. And when you were trying to appease people, when you try to appease your friends, when you try to appease your family, you'll always land up doing something wrong. We should never appease anybody. We should do what is right and stand for what is right. But here you've got a man whose heart had been hardened. Now, Pilate had had a very bad time as a governor in Judea, and uh, he was not in good standing with the Jewish people, and they were always in some sort of a riot, and, and the Caesar in Rome was looking askance at, at, at Pontius Pilate and thinking maybe he's not the man for the job, and Pilate knew this, and he knew that his whole career in politics was at stake, and so he tried to appease the mob. And uh, you can see how hard his heart is by the cruelty which he allowed to descend upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the flogging. And not only once, we know from the other Gospels, Jesus was flogged more than once. The shoving on his head, the crown of thorns, which is a painful exercise. If ever you go to Jerusalem and you go to any of these little souvenir shops, ask them for one of their crowns of thorns that they sell there. And put it on your head and you see how it feels. They make them as souvenirs today. And I've had it put on my head myself just to see what it feels like. And just uh, do it yourself and see what it feels like. And in absolute agony, the Lord Jesus Christ suffers the cruelty of people whose hearts have been hardened against the truth. Now, you can have the nicest people in the world whose hearts are hardened against the truth. You can have people whose kindness extends to all sorts of various um, institutions for, for orphans or for animals or for whatever it may be. You can have the nicest people even in your church, 
You can sit and have a cup of tea with them and they'll be just the sweetest people you could meet. But they will not surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where the hardness of the heart comes in. It's not hardness in the sense of not being nice. It may be hardness in the sense of being cruel. But the hardness really is the constant rejection of Jesus as the only Savior that will give me the right to stand before God on the great day of judgment. And so the second point I want to make is this hardness of heart. And you can see it in the cruelty that was perpetrated upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see it in the ignorance of people. For instance, in chapter 19 and verse 4, it says, Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. Now here is a man who doesn't know anything about the Jewish business of religion. He doesn't know what they believe and he's just looking at the thing just from his point of view and find no basis for a charge against Jesus. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! All reason was gone. All logic was gone. And everything became emotional and malicious, filled with hatred and envy and a sort of a fear of this man who confronted them in their sin. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is faced with the hardness of human hearts in cruelty and in the ignorance of people who did not understand their own scriptures, their own Bible. And you can see what the hardness of the human heart does to people when you look at Pontius Pilate. Because at least three times in this passage, Pontius Pilate says, I find no fault in him. And yet finally he hands him over to be crucified. Um, I don't know if you are a fan of religious art. Um, I, I love scrolling through the internet and looking at the uh, pictures myself. I can't always pronounce the names, but I love the pictures. And um, there is one picture which um, we've been talking about in Amarnus just recently. There is one painting, and um, it is written by it is painted by an Italian artist called Antonio. Now I'm pronouncing his name Ciceri, but that's not the right pronunciation. You'll have to go and find someone who can give you the the correct pronunciation. And he, in 1871, he painted the most beautiful and telling and penetrating um, picture of the moment that Pontius Pilate is pleading with the crowds and presenting Jesus to him. The painting is called Echo Homo. This is the man. Behold the man, which is what is written in this scripture we read today and in the other Gospels. Now, if you go to Google and you put in the words Eka Homo, E-C-C-E, and then Homo, and you'll see a whole lot of pictures coming up because all down through the ages, art, arty people have been fascinated by the drama of this moment. 
the thorn-crowned man, young, strong, beaten, bullied, falsely accused, standing with full dignity before Pontius Pilate. The painting is painted from the back. It's like you walk into onto a, a stage play from the back and you see all the actors from the back. And Pilate is leaning over the balustrade and his arm is outstretched one way and his other arm is outstretched toward Jesus in the shadows. And his whole body is contorted as his conscience battles with the fact that he's about to condemn an innocent man. I want to say to you that hardness of heart brings about a real torturing of conscience. And some people have real problems in their lives, depression problems and all kinds of other problems because they've gone against their conscience. And my plea is, please don't ever go against your conscience when it comes to Jesus Christ. There is no person more important in the world than him. There's no one else in the world that's got the claim that he's got upon your life. And he is the one, the only one, who can give you the spiritual credentials you need to get you into heaven, to get me into heaven. And so you've got hardness of the human heart, cruelty, ignorance, conscience, and even superstition. Because when they told him that he claimed to be God, he claimed to be the son of God, Pilate was frightened. Because you see, amongst the Roman people, there was a common belief that there were what they called special people who were sort of mystics, who had special powers. And even people who were cynical and sarcastic as Pilate was, was sometimes fearful of these people. Our emotions can become terribly mixed up as human beings when we reject Christ. When you reject Christ, no religion makes sense. Nothing makes sense. And so we, we go off to all sorts of strange things, but nothing makes sense to us anymore. And so I want to remind you that the king who died on the cross went there voluntarily and died judicially so that your heart could be softened to turn to him and to receive him as savior so that you don't become the victim of a hard heart that finally drives you into a kind of madness, a spiritual madness. And then finally, let me just talk to you for a moment about Jesus' last moments on the cross. His last moments on the cross you can see in verses 25 and 30 of this chapter. I'll just read them to you. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas and Mary of Magdala. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stick 
uh, of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Just notice this, this as we end this morning. Here is the king. He's dying on the cross. He's dying there voluntarily. He's dying there judicially. He's faced with a whole mess of, of human hardness as he dies on the cross. And as he comes to his last moments, there are certain things that happen that are tremendously ins- full of instruction for us all. There are different things in the different Gospels that, you know, John doesn't write everything in his Gospel and Matthew doesn't write everything in his Gospel and Luke doesn't write everything in his Gospel. But what John puts into his Gospel as Jesus' last moments is very important. <clears throat> First of all, Jesus deals with his mother. <clears throat> Some people have been quite confused by the way Jesus dealt with his mother in the Gospels. Sometimes he deals with his mother almost at arm's length. And you know why that was? Because his mother had to learn that this son that she bore so miraculously all those years ago was her saviour and her relationship with him had to change. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ is on the cross and his mother is standing there, her heart has been changed. She's not standing there as his mother, although she was his human mother. She's standing there as a believer. And that is why Jesus put her into the care of John, his disciple, not into the care of her own family. He wanted her amongst the believers. And so it's very important for us to remember that our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ has got to be that, not of a church member, that, not of a minister or a bishop or anyone else, simply a believer. When I get up in the morning, I'm a believer. When I go to bed at night, I'm a believer. I'm not a bishop or a retired bishop. I'm a nothing. I'm a believer. I've got to believe in him and who he is and what he's done for me. And all that he accomplished on the cross applied to his mother as well as to everyone else. And so his mother becomes a believer. And then you'll remember Jesus said, I thirst. Now, whole books have been written on that, on the sayings of Jesus, and put all sorts of wonderful teachings into these words. But I think that the Lord Jesus Christ said that with those words because he had been through hell. The wrath of God had been placed upon him. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John doesn't include those words, but the other Gospels do. He had been through the most unbelievable experience on the cross, the deepest, darkest moments a human soul could ever experience, that which people who reject Christ will enter into for themselves. And now he's coming out of it. And in all of the torture and the pain and the agony of being forsaken by his father, he says the most natural thing in the world, I thirst. And those words are an indication that the totality of his sufferings have been completed. It's finished. And that is why in the next moment he bows his head 
And it says simply that he bowed his head and said, it is finished. He had received the drink. He said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In another gospel it says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. You see, my friends, the Lord Jesus Christ never, never was out of control of anything on the cross. He went there deliberately. He suffered vicariously in our place, your place and mine. And when the moment came for him to die, he decided it. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit into the hands of his father. Now, it's that Jesus that we invite you to. Now, the story ends with two men who take him and put him into a cave, into a tomb made out of a cave. And they lay him down and they wrap him in spices and they leave him there, the dead body. Well, spiritually speaking, you can leave him there too. But we know that that's not the end of the story. A dead Jesus can do us no good at all. No matter how wonderful he was and all that he suffered, a dead Jesus can't save us. And so we read later on that he rose from the dead. And that Lord Jesus Christ who'd been through all of that is the Savior that will be proclaimed to you next weekend at Easter. And it's the Savior that we proclaim to you today. And we say to you, it's this Savior that all of us need. All of us. No one else. But when, but when you come to him, he gives you the permission to go to heaven when you die. Well, let's pray.